Welcome to the Game Design Hacks. I am Dale. And I'm Tom. In this episode, we're going to look at Tom's first game design challenge for me, which is Ancient Greek Court Intrigue. I can't wait. Oh yeah, it should be pretty sweet. And, uh, you know, we'll discuss the Nintendo Direct, we'll discuss Stadia Studios, some stuff from Lamington Games, and Larian Studios. So, without further ado, I guess this is the theme song. Boop, 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 Dale and Tom da, da, Show. Da, da, Dale and Tom Show. Hey, this is Dale, and this episode we run on Nintendo Direct the past couple of weeks ago. This one took a little while longer to edit than expected. Okay, cool. Welcome to episode four, in which I do the ancient Greek court intrigue game design challenge. But before we get into that, uh, we'll cover a couple of the news and happenings of late. Uh, last week, Nintendo did a Nintendo Direct, uh, so there's some interesting stuff in there. There's also some not that interesting stuff in there. It was a very mixed bag. Yeah, and it kind of came out of nowhere, didn't it? Yeah. I don't know how far ahead of time it was announced. Yeah, it was, it's kind of like, okay, guys, we've got nothing to announce and we're going to do it immediately. Yep, and there's going to be a lot of it. Yeah, a lot of not much. Um, so I guess right off the top, we've got, um, you know, we've got Skyward Sword in there at one stage. Um that was just a masterful troll, the part where uh, where EGI Numa shows up and says, Hey guys, you can see me, and you know what that means. It means not what you think it does, it means Skyward Sword. <laughs> and then, and I'm, I'm, I like Skyward Sword, there's a lot of naysayers, and you know, the controls were a bit fiddly, but I really liked the scale to it, and um, when it was working well, it was... Like, really fun to play. Yeah, well, I think that's one of the Zelda games I haven't had a chance to play, so I'm kind of excited to have a chance to do it on my Switch. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely um, it's definitely got a bit of a long feeling is one of the um, kind of comments you see a lot. There's a bit of repeated territory and, and that sort of thing, and the area's quite broken up. But, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to diving back into that again. I think um, maybe that one took me... I think that one took me years to finish... I, like I played it up in so many broken segments um, that I actually didn't mind if it felt long or not. Um, but I guess that shows you that it probably did feel long. Um, what sort of Zelda game was it? Sort of on the Breath of the Wild to you know Ocarina of Time continuum? Like, uh, do you um, remember? Yeah, yeah. It's it's very heavily into the um, into the dungeon design and it's very linear. Um, all of the overworld stuff is probably even more linear than it was in Twilight Princess. Um, the dungeons themselves are incredibly well designed, like some of the best puzzle dungeons that I think the series has ever seen. Uh, the overworld is quite restricted. Um, the sky feels a little flat. Yeah, we, we should definitely go into this one um, when it comes out in July for sure. Um, there's a lot of stuff to unpack with what makes that work and what doesn't, though, so that will be a long episode. Yeah, well, I feel like dungeon designs almost become a little bit of a lost these days um where you know open world seems to be the thing that a lot of designers lean on over you know tightly crafted dungeoneering experiences yeah yeah and i think i feel as though it's it's one of those things that just 
really like I love that about the Legend of Zelda series as long as they don't make the dungeon feel too much like a trap uh, or something dingy you know yeah. like some kind of prison <laughs> uh, but yeah the aesthetic of dungeons not so much my favorite thing but the um the design of the dungeons especially some of the puzzle room ones where you know the configuration of the room keeps changing and and revealing new paths I really like that style that um, only the Legend of Zelda series has really done those big puzzle box rooms that well. Yeah, well, um, last year I had a crack at sort of creating a procedurally generated dungeon tool, um, sort of creating digi- uh, Zelda-style dungeons. And I know you've done similar stuff in the past as well, right? Yeah. So maybe maybe that's a worthwhile topic for a podcast at some point. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, Hob is a game where the entire world is is one big puzzle dungeon. Um, so I guess what I just previously said about the Legend of Zelda series being the only one that really does it properly is a lie because Hob is fantastic at it. Um, and that just dives all the way in. And I'd love to go into a breakdown on that because I loved that game. Yeah, well, let's, let's do it. Book it in. I'll check my calendar. All right, cool. Um, so other interesting things on the Nintendo Direct, we have Mario Golf. And Tom, you're a bit of a golf fan. Uh, I'm, I'm a sucker for golf games. Like, I think it's about, you know, every two years I'll find a golf game that just sort of ends up taking a month of my life away. Um, like, I think the last one I sort of really got into was Everybody's Golf on the PS4. Um, so, I'm, okay. yeah, I'm, I'm very excited for a Mario golf game to come out again yes i i remember uh playing golf with your friends with your friends yeah and that was quite good um you know we we played quite a bit there and it's it's very literally a mini golf game um first person i recall yeah that sounds about right um yeah like other than sort of the first game that comes to my mind um which was golf story which i don't think i ever ended up actually playing there's um right. golf games seem to be more about iteration than innovation and from like the you know uh footage that i saw from nintendo direct this seems to be you know a very straightforward golf game which again like i mean there's nothing wrong with innovating on the you know same basic structure over and over again and you know that's clearly been polished over the you know 40 years or whatever it's been now that people have been making golf games so be mm. um interesting to see how much is different when the game comes out Oh yeah, I, I was um, really enthused by the uh, running, the golf racing. Oh yeah, I've wanted yeah, yeah. to do that myself <laughs> for some time, and that looks awesome. Just high paced, low accuracy. Get to the hole first. It's time to speed run this shit. It's the absolute opposite of golf, which is what's got me so tantalized about it. It's it's that Mario Kart experience coming into golf. Yeah, yeah. No, that that looks like a really interesting new gameplay mode yeah yeah i mean i don't mind golf like uh, particularly the mini golf variety but even things like i played the uh wii golf and and wii sports resort golf and i thought they were quite good um spent probably more time than i thought i would on them and that's uh because you know the underlying game of golf is is a fun one to kind of just chip at i guess yeah like it's i think if you're playing by yourself it can be quite a lonely game to play like especially as a video game but if you've got like a bunch of people over and you just want to sort of chew the fat while sort of doing something almost in the background then golf games are perfect for that 
Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So really looking forward to that. But aside from those two, there were no real major franchises. Oh, Splatoon three, but again, there's nothing surprising about it, and it's still a ways off. It feels weird. Like Nintendo has so many big franchises that they've just nebulously thrown the title up and and kind of walked away from. I understand that development's been pretty heavily impacted at the moment, or maybe this is the sign that it's been impacted. But um, it's still interesting to see them continue that pattern of, hey guys, here's the logo, see you in a year or two. Yeah, I'd be very sort of interested to learn what development's like at Nintendo at the moment, because, you know, clearly studios around the world are sort of going remote, either temporarily or fully. Um, That looks like... Um, EA's almost gone the opposite direction where did you see they bought a um, shopping centre for their new development headquarters right yeah so that <laughs> so I don't think they're planning on supporting remote working anytime soon <laughs> oh, it's a lockdown it's just uh, you know you're only allowed to stay in one place and this is it yeah it's the dawn of the dead style of lockdown <laughs> <laughs> complete with the mall that's fantastic <laughs> But yeah, like I've got no idea what Nintendo Studios are doing for their developers as they continue to work in these times. And yeah, I mean, the only thing we really know about Nintendo development outside of the I Water Asks series, which you know, of course, they're not doing anymore, but um, is that nebulous and kind of haunting white building that apparently everything that's awesome gets done in? And uh, if they're not in that white building, then what what's happening? Yeah. Where does the Nintendo come from? <laughs> and it's coming from somewhere if that Nintendo directs anything to go by, but... <laughs> yeah, and I mean, if you were to be- believe their press releases, especially uh, not so much in the last 10 years, but the 10 years prior, that it's just the white building just has Shakira Miyamoto's brain hooked up to it, and it's actually the autonomous thing, and it generates new games and about 100 staff members to make it convincing. Yeah, yeah, they sort of turn a tap and the, the brain juice comes out into a cup and then they sort of knead that into a game. Yeah, uh, it's it's a it's a good system. Um, it's, it's just not, unfortunately, quite as viable during these times. Yeah, well, hopefully we'll get that Nintendo brain juice flowing again shortly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm playing um, Browser, uh, Bowser's Fury at the moment, so uh, I'll talk about that in a moment. But um, also, uh, we had in the last fortnight, uh, Google's closed all of its Stadia studios. Studios, which, um, I mean, I'm not that surprised, but it does feel early. Yeah, like, it's kind of the Google way where they sort of, you know, throw money at a lot of different ideas and they don't necessarily follow through on anything if it doesn't have traction immediately. And, you know, like, it always sucks when, you know, game studios close and, you know, developers don't get to make games anymore. But, yeah, again, it's... I don't know who's surprised by this. Yeah, I can actually say I was on the um, the pre-alpha for Daydream while it was still about to be announced. And Google development programs are that bad that I never had to sign an NDA. <laughs> um, and also that they gave me essentially my development kit was they sent me a Nexus 5 as the controller. Um, so that was meant to be the Daydream controller. And they sent me a Google Cardboard and they put a Nexus uh, 6S in the Google Cardboard, and they're like, this is kind of what it's going to be like, maybe. And we're like, this is this is what I'm working at, half brick. So it's like, they, they pretty much need to, you know, really pull stuff together in order to get game developers on board. And they're showing up with 
yeah, two cardboards and two Nexus phones worth about 500 bucks all up. And um, they, they weren't paying anything for it. So uh, that did not go as they hoped it would. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here's your pile of cardboard. Go get them, Tiger. <laughs> yeah. They, they give you the same affordance <laughs> as maybe a Woolworths uh, uh, shopping uh, staff member. Yeah. Here's your cardboard, mate. Go, go do your thing. Yeah. I think it's the uh, Silicon Valley, you know, fail quickly mindset that uh leads to a lot of these sort of ideas which you know it's not necessarily the the greatest strategy for you know creative projects yeah it it seems like they are it's just so incredibly ignorant of the process existing and the process that has existed for game development for so long it just feels crude that they would you know go in and not expect to spend like crazy to get some market dominance. Like, you take a look at how hard Microsoft had to work to get the Xbox to where it was, and they didn't make anything off the first generation, and they had to push like crazy, and they were fighting so hard for every region that they uh, existed in. They had to buy so many existing companies and also buy so many opportunities like famously halo which was bought from bungie and it's like oh my god there's the amount of stuff that that microsoft had to do in early 2000 google rocks up in 2019 and they're just like yeah we're gonna make uh you know we're gonna make two games and we're gonna open two game studios and then in in 2021 they're like well that didn't work and you're like you haven't waited the the like the right amount of time yet yeah, it's a. Uh, I wonder if the well, sort of the doubt that I have in the back of my mind is if there's even room for like another, you know, platform in the gaming market. Like, yeah, you sort of got the three-way triopoly of Xbox, PlayStation, and Nintendo, and then you've also got sort of PC gaming competing with that as well. And then you know, there's all the other markets like mobile markets and things. But yeah, I just wonder if there's any more room in people's gaming diet for another thing yeah and it doesn't seem to me like the amount of like you take a look at the nintendo switch and how well that's doing and if you were to build a new device with the minimum specs that you could get something off the factory floor with it's not much greater than what a nintendo switch is anyway so you can already using the minimum affordances to you create a gaming device with the cheapest manufacturing process like the components that you need for the cheapest device or to manufacture the cheapest device that's capable of displaying a video they're already going to be the same sort of power as the nintendo switch anyway so just manufacturing a new device today means it's going to be automatically game console powered so you don't really need that power to be remote and i understand that there's a vision for you know, amazing ray casting graphics, uh, sorry, ray tracing graphics. Um, but is is that hardware so inexpensive that it can't be offset by a couple of game sales? Like, it seems to me like Microsoft and Sony have already kind of gone to where that demand is and it's already kind of cheap enough. Yeah, and it also kind of feels like these sort of leaps forward in graphics processes aren't the, you know, marketable feature that they were, you know, 10 years ago where, yeah. you know... I don't think people are asking for bigger and or prettier games. They're just asking for tighter and better designed games. Yeah, and I mean, I happily played The Witcher 3 on the Switch, despite the fact that it's a clearly inferior looking version, because 
Yeah, it's good enough. Yeah, I'm playing Divinity 2 on the Switch at the moment, and it's the same deal, like... You know, I don't. That's not why I'm playing that game. This is how pretty yeah. it is. Yeah, and I mean, I know that that that's not the case for everything. And there's definitely a great um, case for big, beautiful cinematic game. But I also don't really understand why that's a uh, cloud gaming thing. I can understand the massively massively multiplayer thing, like making a, a a game around a network service. Yeah. Well, I guess the other thing about you know graphically impressive games is like the technology isn't necessarily the you know block in the pipeline anymore it's yeah. the actual time of producing those assets like yeah yes indeed yeah the art assets on and uh just like on the uncharted games or the um yeah the god of war games it's just daunting i just i can't possibly imagine how much harder uh how much more you can do yeah if you can't you just can't put down two planes and call it a tree anymore yeah that's it all right well you know, um, hopefully it's um, not the absolute end for the Stadia studio uh, for the Stadia. Uh, I don't know whether I hope for that or not, but um, yeah, I'm sorry to sorry to see those studios close. It's never never a good thing. Um, but on the other side, um, a friend of mine, Dave uh, from Leamington Games, has just uh, gone into early access for his word puzzle game Words Collide. Uh, that's quite interesting and um, uh, I recommend anyone on Google Play uh, check out that in early access. It's a really innovative take on the world word puzzle game genre. It's one of those things where he has kind of gone what type of game would I never want to make and why would I never want to make it? And he answered word puzzle games and then he's kind of gone into that to address it and we'll um we'll do a future podcast where um where we interview him to talk about developing a game on your own getting it onto Google Play talking to all of that cuz he is a one man machine that just oh he's relentless he's great at it too i oh, sounds like a great dude to talk to yeah yeah he he's um definitely got his head screwed on straight so that'll be good and you had a little bit on um larian studios um what's that about yeah well it's just because it's in my neck of the woods um larian studios which is the company that's worked on divinity 2 and is currently working on Baldur's gate 3 has opened up a studio in guildford which is currently looking for applicants to apply for that so if anyone's listening to this you know because they've found it through me and uh in a similar part of the uk then maybe you should consider applying for a job at larian studios yeah cool um yeah so uh what what else is that uh what else do those guys kind of do you've got divinity there and um have they been around for a while what's the story i don't really know them um well basically they made the bread and butter doing those sorts of turn-based rpgs um which you know they're sort of one of the biggest studios in the world that are still sort of innovating in that uh ttrpg space and you know as i've said on the podcast before i'm a huge fan of those sorts of games and um you know there's not that many people making them so um yeah if you're a rpg buff then they're you know sort of the top dogs in the industry and uh just uh glad that they're they're expanding yeah cool all right well i guess we're on to what are we playing Do we have a what are we playing sting? Maybe I should be like, what's your flavor? Ooh, what's your flavor? <laughs> bad, bad joke leads to lengthy production. That's how, how this works. Yeah, it's our curse. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, uh, I, recently I've been playing Bowser's Fury. 
Bowser's Fury is the second half tie-in game for Mario 3D World's Switch port. Um, and Bowser's Fury is a really interesting... Um, a lot of people have been calling it an experiment, but I kind of think of it as a half Mario game, or at least it's about half the size of like a Mario 64, from what I can tell so far. I haven't finished it yet, but I feel like I'm entering its halfway point. Yeah, that's like a interesting point, because... I, I haven't played Mario 3D World. Um, I usually only play, like, the, the big Mario games, like your Odysseys and your uh, Galaxies and those sorts of... What, what, what? What, what, what? Oh, my God. You need to play Mario 3D World. It is a big Mario game. It just has a bunch of ca- uh, casual sort of features in there. It's hard Mario masquerading as easy Mario. But it's it's so soft and round. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's also so speed runny and time trialy and and the mechanics are awesome and this version has updated physics which um look i really want to talk about both of these so i reckon all we tend to do in this podcast is just book future episodes <laughs> of this podcast yeah wouldn't that um, be nice <laughs> but i think in my next diagnosis it's it's definitely going to be that i'm sorry a short hike i will get back to you um, but yeah, it's it's just immediately taken my time, and also there's just so many little tweaks, and because uh, this has been ported by one of the main Nintendo studios again, and in their typical fashion, they tend to kind of make a few tweaks on their way through, and one of them has been that they've sped the running up, and they've added a couple of Odyssey's little tricks. Um, but I mean, I used to do a lot of the time trailing in 3D World back in the day, and um, I really enjoyed it as a uh, hard and fast Mario game. I think it is every bit as good as the Galaxy games. And it probably better. It's probably my favorite Mario game because it's as good on the single player basis. And then the multiplayer stuff is just, oh, bertissimo. I don't know. Italian word for good. Uh, bueno? Bueno. Yeah. Mucho gracias. <laughs> well, okay. No, you've, you've sold me. Um... Yeah, because I love Mario games. I love the I love platforming games in general. Um, but yeah, like when sort of those like Mario Odyssey, for example, came out, I ended up losing three months not playing anything else because I had to finish every single little thing in that game. So if there's a a game like that where there's a less to string me along with, I, I think I'll have a much healthier relationship with it. Yeah, the first time I played Super Mario 3D World, I played it with a mate simultaneously of uh, uh, as playing it with my wife. So I was actually playing two co-op profiles and I also played a single player profile. So I ended up beating the game three times within like the first month. I've never done that with any other game. Huh. Okay, no, no, that sounds like exactly the sort of length of time I want a game to go for. <laughs> um, but yeah, the co-op is transformative, but at the same time, like the time trialing is awesome. And I... I haven't played enough of the port to see whether or not the um, time trialing is back in the same fashion because it kind of played in a little bit with the Miiverse stuff, um, but the Miiverse was obviously um, disconnected after the Wii U's kind of um, reign at the top, uh, or at the bottom as it would be. (laughs) But I mean, at the the top of their slate um, was shifted. Yeah, Um, but back to uh, bowser's fury like it's really interesting i'm not sure how much you've seen of it tom uh i've seen the trailer and i've hovered over the purchase button on it in the nintendo store a couple of times okay so it is essentially a new you can think of it as a new much bigger 
kingdom for Mario Odyssey that's in 3D world style um, in that, you know, certain parts unlock as you go along and there's no real breaks and the cat shines are kind of like your moons and there's quite a few of them. But then there's the mecha boss fight mechanic, which it acts as your... Uh, world expansion thing so every time you defeat bowser the world expands a little bit further and you have some new playgrounds to play in um it's really cool and really different but kind of familiar at the same time everything's a cat which is absolutely phenomenal yeah i i like that aspect of it lovely yeah no more more cats the better yeah uh, so in summary, Bowser's Fury, everything's a cat. Get it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, my my favorite part of the trailer was um Bowser's awesome theme song. Huh. I don't recall that from the trailer. Some sweet heavy metal licks. Oh yeah, uh, that definitely happened. Yeah. Heavy metal and cats. That's a Danzig approved <laughs> game. Yeah. Yeah. I feel as though that's um, that's something that just. It may as well have just said heavy metal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the other thing I've been playing with is, again, we're doing dev tools in this section. We might be calling it, what are we doing soon or something? I don't know. But this is on the making side of things. I've been uh, fiddling around with Godot. Um, I'm probably into maybe, uh, maybe I've spent like 60 hours all up. I mean, compared to my decade or so of Unity development, um, it's it's nothing, but it's very promising. And I've been doing the uh, CSG or the um, you know procedural geometry stuff, and trying to figure out whether or not that's going to be my next level or word world building tool. Yeah, no, I um I've done quite a bit of Godot stuff. Um, I'm pretty sure the uh, little prototype that I did in Godot is what got me my my current job. Um, oh, awesome! Yeah, um, so I'm I'm a big fan of that. Uh, especially for 2D um, development stuff. Like, I um, hmm. always kind of felt in Unity, I was kind of fighting against the engine a little bit anytime I wanted to do anything in 2D. Um, yeah, unless it's, you know, not pixely 2D. Like, if you're doing, like, a Rayman type thing, then it's fine. But Yeah. Yeah. But anytime you want to, like, work in pixels, then it's, uh, yeah. yeah, sort of, um, Godot is much better for that. Um, and when I was working on it, it was sort of, like, right on the precipice when they were, they hadn't, quite introduced support for c sharp yet but it was like in beta and then i think by the time i sort of got bored of that project and moved on to the next thing it was actually part of the official release uh yeah it's one of the flavors of the release i actually haven't been using that um even though c sharp is what i use day in day out it's probably one of my most proficient languages um that the creator of godot is like utterly convinced that GD script is perfect for it. And he makes some really good points. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of happy to follow him along that. And I've done some, I've done some considerable stuff with GD script and I'm, I'm pretty, I'm on board. Yeah. Like what, what do you think is the closest analog language to a GD script? Um, it's like Python in that, everything is kind of you know a dynamic class um there's type hinting on it which is a uh, pretty decent actually it's it's type inference engine is okay and it won't let you disobey types that you've kind of declared so it's soft typing or or yeah in inferred typing and that's not bad um as a language it's just all right but as a um as an integrated language, it's very good. Like being able to traverse the scene with auto-completion for what's in the scene tree is amazing. Yeah. So you're um, using the um, inbuilt text editor for Godot. Or are you using yeah an external editor, right? I'm using the inbuilt one. Um, 
Look, it's pretty okay. It's got just enough features. It does feel a little bit like a toy compared to my um, regular IDEs. Like I use Rider for C Sharp um, and VS Code, sometimes for C Sharp and sometimes for TypeScript, JavaScript, you know, that sort of thing. So I'm mostly in the in the uh, JetBrains or Visual Studio family for my stuff, and it definitely feels lacking compared to those. But it's um, it, it's perfectly fine for declaring you know a a component script or a node script um you know uh, it does a lot of the lifting for you it's more convenient in other areas which i've found to be a boost in productivity um that and it's lighter like the c sharp thing is cool but it's also an extra add-on with extra bindings it's an extra runtime it's you know it it can be more performant but because it's less married to the purpose of the engine It'll always just kind of feel a little bit like it's an extra to me. Yeah. And uh, what about the CSG stuff that you're doing? Um, how, how, mm. how have you gone with that? Um, so there's a lot of inbuilt path CSG stuff. Like you can ex- like draw a path and extrude from it. You can um, you know use subtractive geometry stuff um, in order to build rooms out and that sort of thing. So I'm mostly just playing around with that. Uh, but I'm also writing a tool that kind of... Um, actually inspired by um, Mario 3D World's aesthetic, where it kind of allows you to topographically design a level, and then you can kind of place your different block shapes in different areas, and it'll do all the lovely um, beveling of edges and map the materials and all of that sort of stuff in real time. Um, a, uh, a collaborator and a friend of mine from uh, Halfbrick was doing something like that in Unity and it was really cool. Um, and I just kind of wanted to see whether or not I could do something like that in Godot. Ew. Bearing in mind that that guy was an engine developer and uh, probably one of the best coders that I've ever worked with. And I am like a long way behind him. So I'm, I'm just playing catch up at this stage but using new tools to do it yeah uh there's always a bigger programmer yeah that's it um yeah and the last thing i'm doing or what i'm playing is i'm playing the australian business registry that's right i'm getting my abn and gst so i can get my game on the app store and it's a really boring boring part of game development that nobody ever mentioned that's right. I couldn't flip the switch until I got an ABN and, a, and registered for GST. Really? That's, so if you're out there... That's why I got into games. What? To, to not... sign up for, you know, an ABN and <laughs> go through tax forms. If only... Look, I want to be a business, but if only I could wait a couple of years before having my first product. Yeah. No, I'm just sad you have to actually make something. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Um, yeah. So uh, if you're out there and you're getting close to it, just remember to do that if you want to put any monetization in your game. And that made everything about the monetization decision just feel that much worse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, hey, you grub, go sign some grub forms, you grub, if you want to be such a grub for putting grubby money in your goddamn grubby game. I'm like, yeah. oh, I didn't mean it. You think your time's worth something? <laughs> This is App Store, mate. (laughs) Free to play, free to develop. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so uh, that's... um, uh, Look, I'm I'm, I'm through that process, but it has kind of knocked the wind out of the the marketing strategy that I was doing. So I'm going to take a couple of weeks because this is totally a free time endeavor just to, you know, take a, a deep breath, 
you know, and and get ready for the launching again, I guess. Yeah, no, if you're not starving, then, you know, you should take your time and make sure you do these things right. Yeah, and it's all an experiment in kind of... Like, this whole game was a three-month project, kind of designed to just be, like, exactly that, a, a trial of doing mobile games on my own um it was kind of a, a thing i'd wanted to do when i left half brick was do that and i just went straight into the web industry and didn't really get my um go at it so i've been spending some free time kind of working at that and i just kind of want to size it up before i um do anything significant i guess i mean this is not insignificant it's just not like a grand idea maybe that's why it's working yeah no that's like it's a. Uh, um very interested to follow this process along and uh, mm. yeah because i'm on a visa over here at the moment i can't actually monetize any of my side projects so i'm i'm also slightly jealous of you yeah <laughs> especially if your goal was just to get an abn and register for gst yeah Ugh. i should have thought about that before <laughs> migrating <laughs> Um, yeah, and uh, Dave, who, as I mentioned earlier, is doing a uh, release to or a early access release on Google Play Games at the moment, has been incredibly helpful in that process, having walked through it. And um, yeah, he's just able to kind of, you know, give me a nudge in the right direction there when I need to know what the next step is. And that's been invaluable. Yeah, there's a, you should never underestimate the power of, you know, involving yourself in the gaming community. Um, mm, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, what have you been playing, Tom? Uh, well, I've been, I just haven't been able to stop playing Hades. It's so good. Um, we've actually started doing this thing at my um, day job where we've started like a book club, but for games. And the uh, first game that we're doing is Hades. So, just when I thought I could stop playing it because we did our podcast episode on it, I had to keep playing it so I can talk about it at work. But it does mean I can take all the ideas that we discussed in that and pass them off as spontaneous original thoughts when we do the um, game club meeting. <laughs> I've got uh, a brilliant idea. What you should do is just get your dialogue from that, you know, wear a mask, yeah. and then just play your dialogue every now and then and just have a play pause button in your pocket, like Bluetooth clicker, and then you can uh, just you can just go to sleep Homer Simpson style. Well, you need those glasses as well. Yeah, with the um, open eyeballs painted on the outside. Yeah, and they'll be like, oh, that's really insightful, Tom. Also, yeah. can we hear a soft voice in the background of your audio? I mean, not audio. They wouldn't call it audio if you were speaking. <laughs> <laughs> that's, what, that's just what British people call speaking. <laughs> it's the Queen's English. We'll call you on the telly for an audio. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, you're, you're um, glad to see your English accent hasn't gotten any better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but other than Hades, the other thing I've been working my way through um, after years of just trying to find the time for it is the uh, Steve Jackson Sorcery Games on um, iOS, um, which right. were developed by Inkle Studios. Um, how much do you know about either Steve Jackson Sorcery or Inkle Studios? Uh, look, I don't know anything about Inkle, but I've uh, heard of Sorcery. Was it um, was it on PC ages ago, and then now it's an iPhone game? I don't know if there was ever a PC adaptation, but the absolute earliest version of it was a bunch of choose-your-own-adventure books in the 70s that's, or 80s. Yeah, That's what it is. Yeah, okay. So I knew it was a much older game, but yeah, I don't know anything really about it then, obviously. Yeah, um, basically the narrative... Or- choose your own adventure games that have been um, adapted 
for mobile um but they've done some very interesting things with them they're not you know sort of straight ports of the book um and so the reason i've started playing them is because i'm working on a um sort of narrative heavy rpg in my spare time and i've been watching gdc talks with the developers of the sorcery games um and it's um there's four sorcery games on the store and each one has sort of iterated on the ideas of the previous one so sorcery one is probably the closest to the original books where it's basically a branching narrative um Mm. whereas as the games progress they sort of start toying with the ideas of you know open world um being able to revisit locations and you know change decisions and you know things that you can't do in a choose your own adventure book um but sort of one of the really interesting things that i learned from the gdc talks that i've lifted wholesale um for my game is sort of how they keep track of state in um the narrative branches that they go down Um, okay so traditionally what happens with you know branching dialogue and um sort of keeping track of a quest is each time there's an event in a quest you keep track of a condition. So um, say there's a quest where, you know, there's a werewolf in a forest and it's terrorizing villages and, you know, there's someone living in a hut and you speak to them. That might be the first time that you hear about the werewolf in the forest. So you'd set a flag saying, you know, spoken to villager about werewolf. And so then if you come back to them, the story tree acknowledges that and gives you the the branching options of um you know what dialogue options you can have to chat to them um but you know there might have been the chance that you ran into the wolf before you spoke to that villager so it doesn't make sense for them to say um you know there's a mm. wolf out in the woods um because you already know about it um so, so ra- is that just on the iphone games or is that uh something in the in the um older split narrative novel uh, i think it's a technique that's fairly common to lots of branching yeah, narrative yeah. games so you know, if you go back to your old um sort of infinity engine uh ttrpgs i think they do a similar thing um whereas i think they do it in a much cleverer way where rather than keeping track of you know all these different conditions of either seen wolf spoken to villager um you know run away from wolf um basically it treats all these sort of quest paths as you know a a length of um conditions and then it just sort of takes the latest one that you've completed and it assumes that all the conditions before that point in whichever narrative story or whichever narrative branch you're going down are true right um um yeah that that feels like um, I forgive me if I'm not getting it, but that does feel a little bit like, uh, you know, how the unlocks in older adventure games worked, where they just check, okay, you've got this item, so you must have had to have already spoken to this person and gone through this uh, dungeon and been to this part of the world and got this item and all that other stuff. Yeah, yeah, like it's, they'll, it's, they'll it's exactly like that. that. Yeah. Um, but that's something that I've just stolen wholesale for the project that I'm working on, and oh, cool. it's... um. Yeah, one of those things, if I hadn't sat down and watched that GDC talk about it, I I would have probably kept doing this much worse way of doing it. Um, yeah, okay. Yeah, it's really interesting watching, um, especially with like some of those older um, Legend of Zelda games when they're being speedrun and, and seeing how those flags yeah. end up getting hacked in. Uh, like I've seen, like obviously there's the arbitrary code execution stuff that they've been doing in Ocarina of Time, which is batshit insane. Yeah. But um, there's also that... That whole um, 
you know, you'll have to go to this island because it'll set some invisible flag that they somehow know about from, you know, having played every route or run a task through it or inspect the memory in an emulator. And it's just like, oh, man, it's it's exhausting, but it's kind of cool. Yeah. And, you know, like if you want to learn about development, then watching speedruns is actually a really great way to do it because that helps you see where the seams in a game are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Except... um don't make your things one frame window wide because speedrunners will say every trick is a fa- frame-perfect uh, frame trick and it'll be like a five-frame window or something. It'll be like a tenth of a second or something like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that sort of like goes back to, I think, what's quickly becoming one of the themes of this channel is that stealing design is good and a good way to steal clever design is to watch GDC videos or speedruns because you, you learn a lot about making games that you wouldn't just by you know making games yeah and it can be really interesting to uh see from a mechanical perspective as well like they might find something that they can accidentally do that doesn't really feature in a game and then if you figure out a way to sort of you know create something like that and casualify it and kind of spin it in different directions then you kind of have a new mechanic like uh one of the ones that uh was really interesting in the wind waker hd thing is the they've got a um hook slide thing that they do and um it's kind of like a flat ground grappling thing that's it looks kind of fun i'd I'd like to do a prototype where you've got a grappling hook but you can't grapple up you can only grapple across yeah yeah that'd be that'd be cool um so yeah that that's uh what i've been playing recently um the other thing which I've been technically playing with is uh, there's a studio called Sinti Studios, which is based out in New Zealand, um, which produce asset packs. And um, if you spend any amount of time in the sort of depths of any um, digital store, you'll start to recognize the art style. Um, I've seen more than a couple of games on the Nintendo store um, using their art, and, you know, it's the same for um, a lot of, unfortunately, asset flip-type games on uh, the Steam store. Uh, But I've been using their asset packs for um, sort of placeholder art for the project that I'm working on, because I'm very bad at art. Um, (laughs) They produce very good art that's very easy to um, sort of block out my game with. Uh, but they've recently released a new pack called the Dungeon Realms pack, uh, which I picked up last week, which I have already started putting in as placeholder art in my game, and I'm very grateful for it. Yeah, this looks um, really nice. It kind of reminds me of For the King. Yeah, it's um, that low-poly art style, which um, for uh, asset pack is very good because it lets you you know drop it into mobile games but it's also sort of stylized enough that you can uh use it as placeholder art for you know bigger games whether it's console or um i'm not even sure what platform i'm releasing my game on yet if it ever gets released um but it's um as a developer that can't sort of produce their own art um it's always very exciting to get a a box of toys like an asset pack like this and start dropping them into the world that you've been building and turning the placeholder cylinders and cubes that you've been using for buildings and people into you know things with arms and legs yeah i mean i've been doing all of my own modeling and it's time consuming and doesn't turn out anywhere near as nice as some of this stuff so I mean, this has definitely given me food for thought. If I wasn't such a masochist, I'd probably probably definitely give this a go. Yeah, and I 
I don't know if I'd ever release a game with this art in it, just because, like I said, if you go to any of these storefronts, you start seeing these assets showing up in so many games that it's... Uh, but- yeah, is that an argument against it though, or do you think um, it just it from it won't let you stand out? Is that kind of your perspective there, or yeah, I, I, it won't let you stand out, and like I think there's just been so many like games made in bad faith, like those sort of asset flip uh-huh. games that I think there's probably a stigma attached to it. Which you know, again, that's not Cinti Studios' fault. They produce high quality assets at a you know reasonable price. Why are they paying you? Um, I, I just want more assets. <laughs> <laughs> the deal is they give you assets at the price of those assets. Yeah. Sure. Um, but yeah, but because they're so accessible to anyone and, you know, the you know they don't have to license them, they just end up in so many games and so many of those games are bad. Um, I think it, there's probably a stigma attached to it. Um, but it might also be, you know, if you're a developer that you know is sort of keeping track of these storefronts and also know where these assets came from it might be different to your average punter just looking through a store trying to find something to play yeah yeah that would i mean it's super useful to get over that first hurdle too uh like i spent so much time early on in a project trying to figure out what my main world construction tools are going to be and honestly that does kill a large number of projects in their kind of you get one zone prototyped and then you go and open up the new scene to start your next zone and you're just like oh, i'm exhausted i'm out <laughs> yeah yeah totally um and again it's also depends like why you're developing a game like i'm not even sure if i'll ever release this game or if i release it you know if i'll charge money for it um but i just enjoy making games and this adds production qualities to my little hobby project that it wouldn't have otherwise yeah oh i think it's absolutely justified i think it's it's probably even shipping with it's justified if you've got your original idea going still then yeah that that's fine and also you this this looks like great stuff to maybe build some worlds with, even if you've got your own unique characters or something like that. Oh yeah, no, I've, like because with this project, I'm sort of creating this video game and also creating like a tabletop um, RPG adventure based on it at the same time. So I've been taking you know screenshots from the game and dropping them into my tabletop version of it. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, because making a game on your own is not enough, is it? you gotta, you got to do more. <laughs> yeah, no, I need to make two games at the same time in two different mediums. I think I've got a brain sickness. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm like that too, honestly. I'm like, man, if only I could turn making this game into like a YouTube series. Uh, so yeah. That... <laughs> <laughs> Which, um, I mean, watch this space. I might end up doing that. I've definitely... <laughs> definitely done a, a a few mock-ups uh yeah if the editing wasn't so goddamn time consuming because you have to stop making the game to edit yeah and that's time consuming and i'd much rather just be making games yeah well speaking of making games and also taking on more work than you need to do um <laughs> let's talk about the game design brief that i gave you in the last episode certainly i game design i open up my mind Alright, so last time I gave you a brief to make a game, and the brief was 
It needs to be about Greek mythology. It needs to be about court intrigue. And it has to have a random mechanic that isn't determined by dice. Okay. So um, the first question that popped up in my head uh, was, uh, what, what exactly is court intrigue in this regard? Because, um, you know, uh, I, I kind of had pictured it as uh, courtroom intrigue. And I think I might have actually slipped up and said courtroom intrigue in the last podcast. Um, but it can also be uh, intrigue within like a kingdom court. Is that is that right? Or Yeah, that's what I was going with um because you know we were talking about hades in the last episode and there's there's a bit of that in its narrative right right yeah so um i mean that's probably the uh kind of the weakest element that i've carried across um i've definitely gone all in on the greek mythology and i i made sure that there were no random mechanics so i really doubled down on that one but may i present uh some of my thinking here the game is going to be called the Athenian Philosophical Olympic Pentathlon. Yes. So. All right. So some of the ideas um, that I had was, you know, we've got Greek. So I was like, oh, you could be something where you become a new Greek god. Um, like, obviously, that was playing on both of our minds because of the uh, Hades stuff and uh, the Phoenix Immortal Rising. This was all pretty close to the top of the dome. Um, and then I was like, oh, that could be fun to have like the Olympics in there. And then I was like, all right, we can do like a, a philosophy Olympics because it's audible only. So, you know, you've got to, you got to kind of describe how good you are at Olympic events rather than do the Olympic events. Um, I thought for court intrigue, um, I could involve some Athenian democratic debate. Um, that's kind of your court intrigue thing there, I guess. Yeah, no, that totally works for it. And uh, philosophical debate. Um, I, I figure the Greeks are definitely, you know, they're, they're, they're debaters, that's for damn sure. Um, and philosophy is all through this. And then getting to the non-random decision-making. Now, this was a lot of fun. And I was actually surprised with, um, like I mentioned in the last podcast, the first idea that came off my off the top of my head was having uh, decisions based on uh, clock quadrants. And I went quite away in in thinking about ideas there. I ended up using less of it than I thought, but there was at one stage a version of this game where uh, essentially you'd keep debating until it was in the correct quadrant of the clock and then... You'd basically try to win by by debating for long enough, um, and there'd be you know a, a judge that would uh, disqualify you if you started waffling yeah. or get or drifting too much. I think um, that's what a filibuster is, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I was worried about um, yeah. I was worried that a clock doesn't have like the seconds are too short for that, and hours are too long. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, our would be hardcore. <laughs> that's that's filibuster territory there. Um, so I, I did end up doing some hemisphere and quadrant base outcomes, but nowhere near as much as I thought. Uh, the other one is timed rounds, um, which also again going off the clock thing. Um, so that's uh, you know the longer debater or the winner is the one speaking at the end of the round. Um, I kind of like those um, those ones where you've got to try to draw it out and pass it around at the same time. Um, there's a Mario Party game that's pretty much in half of the Mario Kart parties where you got to pass the bomb and it'll get <laughs> closer and closer to exploding, but you you don't want to be the one that it explodes on. That's great fun. Um, 
so yeah um strongest debate and democratically voted decisions um yeah so this is once again for the title the Athenian Philosophical Olympic Pentathlon. Burr, 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 burr. Burr, 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 burr. That's right. It's like the Olympics, but it's verbal and philosophical. And there's five events. May the best debater win. So let's start with the rules. There are two umpires who hereafter will be referred to as magistrates. The umpires are two Athenian magistrates named Archimedes and Aristotom. Some rounds are decided by the first to act, others when the first unanimous decision is made. Um, there's a clock which hereafter will be referred to as the sundial. It's a wall clock, but we call it a sundial. It's used for timing the events of the game. There are persistent bonuses in every one of the five events. Either magistrate can award a bonus point after any attempt for a particularly Greek answer, um, and a point can be subtracted for anyone who calls the clock anything but a sundial. Um, and anything marked with reveal... Oh, I won't say that. That's Ooh. a secret. Yeah. All right, so... Uh, before I get into the sports, Tom, um, what, are, what are your thoughts? I'm a big fan of the naming conventions. This uh, Aristotom uh, magistrate sounds like a very handsome dude. I mean, yeah, but not not as handsome as that Archimedes one. It sounds pretty good. <laughs> yeah, like I'm struggling to think of any games that have sort of built around a structure like this, um, which is like really interesting and novel, sort of having different defined events. Um the only one I can really think of is... I don't know if you watch It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think I can see where this is going. Yeah, and they invent a game called Charlie McDennis. Which, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which I think also has a bunch of rules about, you know, being penalized if you call something by the wrong name. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think... Um, I, I've forgotten the name of... The I, I was lightly inspired by uh there's there's a game um I'm really cooking it. I can't remember the name of it. Uh there's a game that uh a couple of the guys at Halfbrick used to play at lunchtime where one of the sports is javelin. Um it's like some it's a series of party games essentially, all sport themed. Yeah, this is this this game design is pretty much straight from Mario Party though. But not your grandfather's Mario Party. No you Great, 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 great grandfather's Mario Party. Yeah, possibly. There's a lot of greats in there, and that's why this will be great. So let's get into the sports. So, sport number one, the philosophical javelin. So players can get ahead by describing their javelin throw, and the best throw wins. So get descriptive. The score is the number of 10 second blocks you take to describe it using metaphors and ancient storytelling. You can dismiss... The uh, sorry, you can diminish the previous throw's scores by uh, by putting them down uh, in order to get further ahead. And either umpire can end the throw for waffling, extraneous hyperbole, or bad sportsmanship. Everyone gets two throws each, and the points are added to the pentathlon total. So that um, that's the first sport. In the second sport, we have single combat. So this one's in one minute rounds, and players have to be the strongest warrior in a game of one-upsmanship. The players have got to describe who would beat the previous player, how they would beat the previous player in a round of single combat. If their argument is compelling, they win and a point is awarded to them. If they take too long, which is decided by one of the magistrates, or they don't have a convincing victory, 
they lose and an additional point is awarded to the previous player. The rounds last a minute on the clock and at the end of the timer, the last player can finish their argument and the winner of that argument is then awarded three points. So there's two rounds each for that one too. And then uh, sport number three, we have the, um, it's getting pretty rules heavy. I'm starting, my eyes are glossing over like I'm about to play a tabletop RPG. Yeah. All right, so for sport number three, I had the philosophical discus. Now, this might seem a little bit like philosophical javelin, but I promise you it's completely different. Uh, This time it's a disc. So the players can get ahead by describing their discus throw, and the best throws wins. It's a completely novel idea, nothing like the previous one. The score is the number of seconds they take to describe it using metaphors and ancient storytelling. Again, I mean, not again, this is totally unique. They can diminish the previous throw scores uh, by, you know, describing that theirs is better, putting down the previous throw, uh, describing theirs being thrown past in order to get further ahead, um, and either umpire can end the throw for waffling, extraneous, hyperbole, or bad sportsmanship. Everyone gets two throws each. Okay, you know what this is starting to remind me of? What? There is a tabletop RPG called The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, which is basically a game of competitively telling tall tales and um trying to one-up each other um with your elaborate stories yeah but um yeah what, what it doesn't have that this one does is umpires which i think is a really neat balance to that um <laughs> and being a like you know i think from what i remember from baron munchausen it's you know people just trying to agree amongst themselves who had the best story but um this has an authority that tells you who absolutely does have the best story. <laughs> I wanted to keep us in as DMs because I, I feel like we've got to design it for podcast play as well. So that's why they, these are all pretty much just Jackbox games, games, but with a you know a, a Greek Olympic feel or something. Yeah, and talking. Yeah, heaps of talking. Speaking of which, sport number four is debate for ascension. So this one's got two minute rounds, and the players have to. Uh, become the strongest god in a game of one-upsmanship. It's a little bit like the single combat one. The players have got to take turns describing how they would beat the previous god in a battle with their godly trait or power. So I don't know if you've ever played that uh, strongest superhero power win game, Tom? No, how does that one work? Uh, It's just... It's like a game you play with kids and you're like, oh, I'm going to have magne- I'm going to be made of metal. Or I'm going to have magnesis and I'll, I'll be able to like throw you around. All right. Yeah. yeah. I'll be able to like set you on fire because everyone knows that magnets grab fire and you got to do that sort of thing. I'll tell you my favorite superhero power is, is, um, it's a character in, uh, Doom Patrol who has all the powers that you haven't thought of yet. <laughs> So, every time someone thinks of a power, they lose a power. <laughs> but that, that's always been my favorite thing in a comic book. I really like that. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah well, th- this was kind of inspired a bit by the... Um, uh, I, I was recently going through the audiobook of Sandman, and there's a game uh, that he plays in hell with a demon, and essentially, uh, as like they describe how they defeat each other and that gives them the victory yeah i think i remember that from the comic books yeah and it's just i thought that would make an excellent game like uh, if you put like strapped a couple of rules onto it and then 
and then you know see how it goes in this case the same umpires that were in all the previous ones and uh yeah so this one you only get about a minute on the clock and at the end of the timer the players can finish their argument and then the winner of that last argument is awarded three points again um yeah again if you take too long to describe your power if it's a repeat if it's not convincing that it would win either magistrate can decide that you lose um, but if you make it through, you win. Um, yeah, and there'll be two yeah. rounds of that as well. Okay, and what about the the fifth sport? Well, the last sport is the philosophical chariot race, and I've saved the main event for last because this one is, like, it's involved. I, I've, I've essentially come up with a three-round thing, which is nearly another bunch of games on top of it. Uh, but I feel as though the chariot race really does need to be the piece de resistance, um, even though it was probably more popularized in Rome than Greece. Um, you know, we're, we're playing loose with this stuff. It's There, there were chariots in Rome, but... Uh, sorry, Greece. Olden times. Yeah, it's <laughs> anything before us. Yeah, ye olde Greece. <laughs> um, so in the first round, the players are given two minutes to write down a combination of horse, cart, and strategy that will win them the race. So kind of like in uh, Quiplash or... Uh, in a Jackbox game, Quiplash, you've got to kind of write this one down without kind of talking. Um, so uh, at the end of the two minutes, everyone reads their combination al- aloud. And then uh, the winner, it decided by uh, Archimedes, is awarded five points. And the runner-up by, is awarded three points by Aristotle. Um, and then, uh, you know, there might be bonus points in there. Uh, we'll just have to play it and see. There might be, I might be reading an instruction to say not to say something out loud, but that's <laughs> fine. No one will remember. Um, yeah, well, I mean, do we do we reveal on the rules podcast? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think we should. Um, yeah, okay. One, because... I think, A, anyone that plays this game will probably have forgotten that by the time we actually get around to playing with them. And B, the first time you play this game, you'll have this revealed to you anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, it's not like it's a massive thing, but uh, yeah. uh, there'll be a bonus two points awarded for the most descriptive, and that's decided by both magistrates. Um, and the reason why that will be revealed afterwards is because it's going to be a, a bit of a... a balance striker in fact you know what we could probably make it worth four points just to really tip the scales yeah like it's always so hard to like do this sort of fine-tuning stuff for a game that you've never played on paper before or played for real before rather yeah um but i feel like the four points is gonna be uh nah you know what? i'm putting it back to two let's just say the design challenge is over by the start of this episode and i'm not allowed to edit it again yep play where um, it lays actually yeah i mean we could do that or we could just run through and tweak some stuff well we might run through and tweak some stuff that could be fun yeah um patch it yeah get patch notes going before the first play <laughs> everyone knows you don't need to play test to improve yeah don't disregard that please um all right in the second round there's another two minutes and everyone gets a second shot at the end of the two minutes, they read aloud again, but this time Aristotle awards five and Archimedes awards three. So it's a reverse magistrate kind of situation. And, why, and this time, a bonus two points are awarded for the least descriptive or most succinct, as decided by both magistrates. Um, ooh, each. There we go. We'll make it two points each. Everyone gets two points each. Decided. So there's four up to four points awarded by magistrates. Yeah, um, no, that works. 
and then bonus round, uh, both magistrates award a further two points each to the chariot they believe would actually win a horse race. <laughs> Uh, from both rounds, um, so that's uh, that's that's all of the events in the philosophical Olympic pentathlon. All five events, and uh, after that, we'll have a medal ceremony, and we'll give a bonus three points in Mario Party style. I guess I'm really showing that Mario Party was here, which is uh, in the skeleton by having the bullshit ceremony after the actual game, just so that uh, you know, so that. Uh, there's, I guess, just a little bit of disruption or whatever. I don't know. I never liked this part of Mario Party, so I have no idea why I'm propagating it, which means that I may be on the Mario Party team. It, uh... Well, you you have removed the Roldal move, so you've taken out my biggest problem with Mario Party anyway. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so the first award is the Leonidas, or Spartan Award, which is given to the player with the most warlike approach to the game. Uh, we then have the second award, which is the Socrates Award, or the most Socratic Award, which is the player with the wisest approach. Uh, we then have the Euclid Award, which is the player with the most calculated approach. Um, and then, then the points are tallied, and the victor becomes the Athenian... Philosophical Olympic Pentathlon Champion. Yeah! 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 <laughs> and the crowd goes wild. So, um, yeah, I, I think this is going to be fun. It's definitely quite jackboxy, quite Mario Party. It's definitely designed for, um, you know, the players are going to be the form of the entertainment here for sure. Yeah, no, this, like, what I really like about this is sort of like a one-shot format is it's clearly got like a ramp up in um spectacle and you know it's sort of like like because when you run a one shot um of an adventure for a night you can never sort of be guaranteed that you know it's sort of got a cohesive beginning middle and end and you sort of finish at a point where you know you can draw a line under it and everyone goes home happy that they've you know sat through an adventure whereas like that's built into the the format of this um, which is very neat. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, yeah, my my trick was definitely to repeat two games twice, um, <laughs> and then once I'd done that, uh, I I made the second one more significant than the first, and then found the most significant game, made it stand alone, and raised the stakes, and made it a little bit more nuanced. So yeah, hopefully that's a crescendo. Um, this is very very Far Cry style game design. It's the same thing twice, and then there's a third thing that makes it feel a little bit different. Yeah, and it's I like how it's sort of taken a lot of inspiration from video games because well video games tend to take a lot of inspiration from tabletop games that doesn't necessarily come back the other way quite as often yeah we're we're gonna get a bit of that uh i guess just because my tabletop experience is relatively fleeting and my video game experience is much more comprehensive so i guess you write what you know right yeah no I, i think that's how new ideas get percolated right yeah, yeah, definitely. Take something from one place, throw it into another, and adapt and adapt and adapt. Yeah, so I guess we just need to work out how to play this on the podcast now. Yeah, um, I, I feel like it's probably like a three or four contestant kind of thing. You wouldn't want to, um, you wouldn't want to jam in too many more people. Um, logistically, that might be tough, but I reckon, um, you know, we might be able to get a couple of mates each in for this. Yeah, well. Who, who's going to be Archimedes and 
Aristotle. Uh, that'll be us, yeah. But which one's which? <laughs> um, I'm not sure. We'll have to figure it out on the day. Maybe by a roll of clock. Yep. <laughs> yeah, we'll use the hour hand. Do it properly. <laughs> I, just, I love that you will have a full hour to decide when to stop the debate <laughs> argument. <laughs> You imagine like deciding on the fifty-nine minute mark. Yep, just <laughs> uh, dis- utterly disgusting. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely get some people and we'll, we'll give this a play. But um, I guess the next thing for us—I mean, that concludes the design portion of the podcast. But for me, but it's time for me to set you with a design challenge. Oh no, this is payback for the last one. Design, design challenge. challenge. It's a design challenge. prizes are just the beginning all right dale what do you have for me all right so i feel like you should design a narrative role-playing game oh i like those based on tommy wazo's the room (laughs) oh no (laughs) (laughs) don't pretend like you weren't given it last week (laughs) i'm ruining the podcast magic i did not design that i did not (laughs) oh hi dale Yeah, I I can't wait to uh, read what I have already read. I'm ruining the podcast magic again. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, tune in next week for uh, Tom's design on, uh, yeah, Tommy Wiseau's The Room uh, narrative role-playing game. And uh, yeah, I I did give him this prompt uh, a week ago and uh, yeah, he's he's turned it in. It's quite good. I'm I'm looking forward to discussing it further and seeing what, what... what comes up there excellent yeah so what, what do you reckon on um on the greek court, court intrigue did you have any um twists that you were going to do back on that um sort of one of the things i was thinking about was um maybe if you had a way to interrupt um people as they were delivering their tortet tall tales um mm. sort of to give people that went earlier in the round a chance to sort of like claw things back so i guess anyone that goes after the first person sort of knows how long they need to make it to um you know yes. spin the tail for further so if there was like a mechanic to sort of counterbalance that um that could be an interesting addition yeah i that had uh i mean that's why i've gone for two throws each but i'm not utterly convinced that that's like most of them are two rounds each but i'm not completely convinced that it doesn't like you know obviously the first player only gets a chance to one up once yeah um but yeah if it was roman i would would have probably put in the um like just stabbing as as (laughs) as the way to (laughs) interrupt the other player <laughs> yeah or um uh, if if it wasn't for this damn audio format and also the fact that we're half the planet away from each other maybe yeah. if you had to like draw bricks from a jenga tower as you were delivering it so you have to try and stop before you knock the tower over but you also want to like make it as unstable as possible forever comes next oh uh, yeah like oh, i'm I lifting like that. that uh straight from a, another rpg called dread but um i always I always got a chuckle out of the the Jenga tower as a um, mechanic for introducing tension to a game. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah. Um, I don't know what else is there. I uh, so like obviously shouting insults and distractions will get incredibly busy with with six people on a cast. Yeah. Um. Uh, maybe it's only the previous player. Um. 
What's something Greek? Like a reaction that somebody would have that's kind of Greek? Um, drinking wine. They'll, they'll big into wine. Um, but how would you wine as like drink wine as a retort? <laughs> <laughs> that's a feature you have to get drunk enough to uh no is that yeah i don't really know enough about ancient greece everything i've learned is from hades and uh the 2004 movie with bradley pitt troy what why would you why would anybody learn anything from that film because well, it's so long you, gotta, <laughs> you, you pick up something from it <laughs> It's long enough that you have to, like, start doing other things with your life during it, including yeah. education, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know, you could have, like, a Zeus lightning thing. Like, you could essentially, you know, maybe the previous player can just yell crack and that equals a lightning strike. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or release they- the Kraken. <laughs> I'm not sure. Maybe you can... All right. How about whoever the previous player is can have Zorba Dance loaded up on their mobile phone and they're allowed to use that, playing that out loud near the other player as a distraction in any way that... Oh, no, that needs same space as well, doesn't it? Yeah, all right. Yeah, plus, you know, I love that song, so I don't know how that'd be a distraction. <laughs> he's, he's playing the best game of his goddamn life. da <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, right. okay, maybe that's something we can uh, have a think on. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll see. Uh, I think this might be the next podcast, or maybe your design is the next podcast. I'm not sure. Um, I guess we'll we'll do the uh, housekeeping after the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess speaking of which, uh, this is probably the logical closing point of the podcast. Yep, when we start discussing what we might do on the next podcast. <laughs> which as i mentioned during the podcast is pretty much all we do on the podcast but um yeah i'm looking forward to it so uh until next time i've been dale i've been tom say your catchphrase it's it's a game it's game bye-bye <laughs>